Welcome to Mike's Notes. This episode is going to be another audio version of a blog post I wrote about Chris Cole. Uh, Chris Cole was on the Patrick O'Shaughnessy podcast, Invest Like the Best. And O'Shaughnessy has a really nice podcast. Uh, one, because he's always well prepared. Uh, two, because he asks interesting questions that are a little off the beaten path. Three is because he gets people that aren't always on the same podcast uh, rotation, like uh, to promote something. And I guess that's the fourth reason is that people go on his podcast and they're not always promoting something, which uh, I think that helps bring some freshness to the uh, to the episodes that he has. But his podcast with Chris Cole was uh, really good for me. I liked it a lot. And the biggest reason that it was... It made such an impact on me was is because it helped explain Cole's thinking. Cole had written a paper that I had bookmarked to read called Volatility and the Allegory of the Prisoner's Dilemma. And even though I had saved this paper and I had intended to read it, I hadn't read it. And I had read it a couple times, but I just couldn't like I couldn't get into it. I couldn't get into the flow of it. And I think part of the reason was is that I just didn't understand. Cole's perspective. I didn't understand his point of view. I didn't understand really where he was coming from or where he was going or what his like big overall ideas were. And after listening to this podcast with O'Shaughnessy, I realized what his big ideas were. I could understand what his underlying premise was and then I could approach the paper and I understood it much, much, much better. And that's a big way to um, help your learning. That's a nice ledge to stand on is these podcast interviews that different authors do. I remember that after I listened to Greg Gipps' podcast on Econ Talk, I was able to enjoy his book a little more. And that's been true for many, many authors that go on the podcast tour. And this is a piece of advice that I give people who always ask me, like, how do you how do you read so much or how do you find things to read? And podcasts are an awesome uh, opportunity to discover things, to discover people like Chris Cole who maybe are off your radar. And once you listen to their interviews, you can get an idea of who they are and what their ideas are. And it just makes the reading of their written work so much better. So let's get into my notes. One. Negative one, zero, positive one. This is what Cole said in the podcast. Quote, value investing is a valid classic strategy, but value investing extracts an equity risk premium. During large-scale declines in markets, value investing is not immune to the crisis that can envelop a market. And then a little later on, Cole said, the irony is that value investing needs these crises because it results in all this behavioral inefficiency that allows for the value risk premium to be extracted. End quote. A lot of the podcast was about volatility and convexity and figuring out how to act if you think those things are going to happen. And a lot of the podcast reminded me of Nassim's, Nassim Taleb's work, specifically anti-fragile. It took me a long time to read Anti-Fragile. I didn't read it through the first time, and I didn't read it through the second time, but it was after hearing Nassim Taleb on, of all places, some podcasts, that I got his underlying idea, and I was able to take this generic picture and read the book and then dive into the details. Part of the problem with Taleb is that he uses words I didn't understand. He talks about the Mediterranean history, which I had no idea of. He has these characters in his book, like Nero and Fat Tony, and 
It wasn't until I matched uh, Taleb's cadence in the book that I really enjoyed the book. And one big part of anti-fragile is this triad, which uh, can be representative as negative one, zero, and positive one. Part of my obstacle for Taleb was at first as I didn't understand this idea of opposites. I thought the absence of something was the opposite of it. I was, it was almost like if someone had asked me, what's the opposite of negative one? And I said zero. And that's not true at all. And this is something that Cole and O'Shaughnessy talk about in the podcast. To take Taleb's words and Cole's ideas and our simple mathematical model, we can look at it like this. Long convexity is anti-fragile, is negative one. Value investing and cash is robust and zero. Short convexity is fragile and positive one. So we have this triad of things. We have the negative value, we have the zero value, and we have the positive one value. In the podcast, O'Shaughnessy says cash might protect you, but you're not going to earn a big positive return by sitting in cash. The idea of a triad and the idea of opposites is something that's come up a lot in the different notes that I've taken. And usually it goes under the name inversion, where we try to think about the opposite of something. We try to think about something as forward and backwards. When I've written about Bill Belichick, we've seen that in that Belichick thinks about the offense and the defense. He thinks about those opposites and how to win a football game. Monish Pabrai thinks about opposites when he's doing an analysis of Coca-Cola, thinking about, okay, one, what will make Coca-Cola succeed, but then the opposite of that, too, what will make Coca-Cola fail? John Boyd also thought about the opposites when he was teaching fighter pilot school at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. He was teaching students that they didn't just have to survive if they were in front of a, another pilot in front of an enemy pilot, but they also had to reverse the position. They had to become the ones that were behind the enemy pilot, and that led to some of Boyd's strategies and tactics. Sometimes we, and by we I mean mostly me, stop short of the absence and not the opposite. We don't do the full inversion. This was my misunderstanding of Taleb. For example, the opposite of spending isn't saving. The opposite of spending is earning. Cole doesn't want to weather a crisis. He wants to profit from it. Two. Small vol, as in volatility. This is what Cole says. We have this false stability, and underneath that, we have this incredible potential for volatility. We see this every time people try to suppress smaller volatility. It's true with marriage counselors. They say the people most likely to get divorced are the ones that aren't fighting. The ones that aren't fighting at all have the most tension because they've given up on one another. It happens with avalanche prevention on ski slopes. The Forest Service will blow up portions of a mountain to release the avalanche pressure. One of my favorite books is Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. The book opens with Gonzalez on the deck of an aircraft carrier, and this is what he writes. If you could see adrenaline, then you'd see a great green greasy river of it oozing off the beach at San Diego tonight. You'd see it flowing 100 miles out toward the stern of the boat. That's what the pilots call it, a boat despite the fact that it displaces 95,000 tons of water, has a minimum of 6,000 people living on board at all times, and is as long as the Empire State Building is tall. And if you like that introduction to the book, you will really like this book from Gonzalez. And Gonzalez is on this boat to figure out why F-18 
uh, fighter pilots can land on the deck of an aircraft or why they don't die. And part of the secret is in not repressing small volatility. Briefing officers, Gonzalez writes, use dark, dark humor in which everyone was reminded how to look death in the face and still come up with a wry smile. So in humor, we have this way to release the underlying tension, that it can't build up. Right now, I'm also reading With the Old Greed by E.B. Sledge, which is an incredible account of two invasions uh, in the Pacific during World War II. And this idea that humor exists in these war zones uh, was kind of surprising to me, but it kind of makes sense if we look at it through this lens of not letting small volatility build up. This is what Sledge writes. Quote, my boondockers were so full of sweat that my feet felt squishy when I walked. Lying on my back, I held up first one foot and then the other. Water literally poured out of each shoe. Hey, sledgehammer, chuckled a man sprawled next to me. You've been walking on water. Maybe that's why you didn't get hit coming across that airfield, laughed another. I tried to grin and was glad the inevitable wisecracks had started up again. End quote. So Sledge is in this, these amazingly uh, wretched and horrible and terrible situations. And through it all, humor, humor is still around. And, and maybe part of the reason is that humor works because it releases this small volatility. It's like, uh, it's like couples who will have these many small arguments and not let um, animosity build up. Forests have controlled burns, snowpacks have controlled avalanches, marriages have fights, soldiers have humor. A good way to avoid the major volatility of the future is to make sure that you have small volatility today. 3. How much does your insurance cost? Cole says, quote, it's one thing to have convexity, but if it's incredibly costly, then you end up in a hole that you can't come back out of, end quote. So Cole is explaining his strategy and he's talking about it. And O'Shaughnessy asks how someone can be long convexity. And Cole goes on to explain how you can mix value investing so that it pays for the long convexity premiums uh, that he wants to include in his investments. And it kind of reminded me of like a dubious landlord. So I imagine that rather than financial instruments, it's physical ones. So you own an apartment complex and you collect the rent. And I think that's equivalent to Cole's value strategy. And the rent doesn't make you rich, but it covers your expenses like a huge insurance policy in case something happens. Then one day the whole building burn, burns down and you collect your insurance. Now, while this is insurance fraud in the real world, I think this gets at the idea that Cole is betting on, where he thinks some huge major event is going to occur, and he wants to be able to profit from it. The key is paying the right price. If you pay too much for fire insurance, you'll never last long enough to see a fire, and if you pay too much for financial options, you may not last long enough for the opportunity to profit from them. Howard Marks reminds us that, quote, there's no such thing as a good or bad idea regardless of price. So it matters what we are going to pay for the option of something to come true. Four. Cheerleaders and coaches. This quote is from uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Quote, I've always felt that macro investing is so hard because you need to get two things right. 
accurately forecast what's going to happen, but more importantly, you need to position your portfolio in a way that will actually benefit if your forecast comes true. And this was a great idea because it's so easy to know what to do, but, but the implementation of it is much harder. You could get a lot of things right in your predictions, but if you don't get right how you profit from those things or how you are rewarded from those things, then, then you're ultimately going to be wrong. Five. Argue well. When we talked about small volatility a few minutes ago as a way to release tension so that big volatility doesn't crush you, arguing well is one way to do that. This is what Cole says, quote, I ask myself and my staff that question all the time. What if we're just wrong? This is an existential question if you're a long volatility manager. The best managers in money, sports, and people all try to be proven wrong. Bill Belichick actually has a portion of coach evaluation to see whether or not people disagreed with him and if they had good ideas. The outsider CEOs we looked at in a previous episode of the podcast talked about um, the value of arguing. One of those outsider CEOs said that executive meetings were like wrestling matches. Jeff Bezos has a personal assistant who has deep knowledge of all of Amazon and that tries to find the other side of the arguments. Andy Grove talked about this as well in his book. In Michael Lewis's latest book, The Undoing Project, he writes about Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And Kahneman and Tversky uh, had such an incredible relationship where they both brought out the best in each other because they were both able to see problems in the other person's argument and approach them in a way that the other person was open towards. And that was a big part of all of this collaboration they were able to produce. It was a big part of all of those amazing psychological results that came from Kahneman and Tversky's research. No single person knows it all. Arguing well, said Wilbur Wright, helps round the corners. Six. Flanking creative problems. Cole says this in the podcast, quote, I hate this idea that people segment left brain, right brain. Some of the investors I admire the most are truly creative, particularly if you look at the global macro space. Someone has to envision a reality that is different than the reality we have today and understand how to structure instruments to profit from that potential reality shift and assign probabilities on that. Intellectually, I don't see that as much different from some highly technical artists, end quote. We often come back to the Howard Marks idea that you have to be different and you have to be right. It's easy to read, but this is harder to do. How do you think different and how do you make sure you're right? Look at the iPhone. Why in the world would they make a smartphone without a keyboard? Look at Tesla. Why in the world did Elon Musk start, of all things, a car company? Look at Sam Adams. Why in the world did Jim Cook start a beer company? Maybe the why is in the who. Maybe everybody, like Cole suggests, is an artist. In her book, Amanda Palmer talks about the way that everybody is an artist. And if you think about it, Palmer's framework makes a lot of sense. Everyone is a performer, whether your stage is a BMW dealership, a blog, a podcast, or Carnegie Hall. Everyone has props. Our artists use paintbrushes, and they use audio recording equipment, and they use sales brochures, and 
artists all have to show some creativity. You have to be doing something that people want to consume, something that people want to watch or listen to or pay attention to. So sales is an art. Writing is an art. Podcasting is an art. We have to use these creative domains, these one half of the brain ideas to approach a problem. But then we also have to use the other part of the brain to approach the other side of the problem. If we can imagine our problem has a front, these left and right brain ideas are like flanking from the left and right. They are going to pinch the problem. They are going to pinch the enemy. If the creative side of our brain is approaching from one side, then we need the other side of our brain to approach from the other side, and that's going to be the brass tacks. That's going to be rolling your sleeves up and making the trains run on time. That's going to be an understanding of the numbers. It's going to be understanding of the programming. It's going to be having the people skills to get the job done. We need both of these skills because those are the way problems truly get solved. That's the way lasting solutions come into existence, is that we have a creative approach and we have a logical approach, and both of those are the best way to solve problems. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast.